How many of you guys have ever been busted before? Just caught red. I'm the only one in this room that's been, okay, all right, there we go. Thank you for your honesty. Uh, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, we lived in this house down Gaswell. There was a big loft upstairs. This is a picture. Uh, this is 1996, so no HD. I'm sorry. Uh, this is a kind of a view from the top of where me and my brother, we had our bedroom was this upstairs loft with like a half wall. So this is the view from upstairs looking down. That's me and my brother. I'm the one giving him the bunny ears. Uh, because I ooze maturity, and my mom and dad, they gave me this explicit command, and I was about 10 or 11 at this time, they said, at 9 o'clock, you go to bed, all right, pretty straightforward, it's time to go to bed, you go to your bed, you stay in your bed, and you go to sleep, okay, if not, I'm gonna whoop you, all right, so, so I have this clear command and the punishment of what happens if I violate the command, well, here's the problem, David Letterman came on at 10.30 at night. And I loved David Letterman, okay? So I wanted to stay up to be able to watch this. The problem was I had this bedtime and this consequence if I violated it. So what I started to do, this is before TiVo, so before, before I started to question my mom and dad and what they told me to do. First of all, I looked at what they, the command. Did they really tell me that I had to stay in bed Or do they just mean, like, stay in my room? Because what I actually found was there was this desk that went right up against that half wall, and I could, like, lay up on the desk, like Mission Impossible style, and just kind of peek over the ledge, and I could see the TV. So I'm like, technically, I'm in my room. You know, it's not a problem. Uh, But then I started to have to, like, justify what would keep me from not being in my bed and over there. I started to question their, their motives for me and their love for me, right? Like, I don't need 10 hours of sleep. That's insane, right? I'm fine with like six or seven. And then then I started to to question, like maybe it's just that they don't want me to know the humor that they know, right? To be as funny as they are. So they're cutting me off. These horrible, horrible parents. They're just torturing me, tying me down to my bed. You know, this is kind of where I'm going in my head with it. And, And so I decided mom and dad don't know best. They don't have my best interest in mind. And so what do I do? 10-year-old Justin creeps out of bed, crawls on the desk, and watches David Letterman. And it was hilarious, okay? So I do it the next day. And the next day, and days become weeks. Well, don't forget, I'm a dumb 10-year-old. And we're in the car going to school one morning, and something comes up in the car, and I'm like, oh, yeah. That's like on David Letterman last night when he was like, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, you're like mid-sentence, like the words are coming out, and you're like, no. And my mom flips around. How did you know what he said last night? I, you know, busted, right? Busted, busted. I, I disobeyed, and there were consequences, okay? So we look, we're going to look this morning at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to see a, a fall, a disobedience, and then starting next week, a punishment. Now, this is one of the most vitally important chapters in all of Scripture, okay? We're going to spend the next four weeks on this chapter alone, because this chapter lays a foundation for the rest of Scripture that follows. See, it explains why the rest of Scripture is necessary. Listen, If the fall would have never happened, God could have just wrote Genesis 1 and 2 and been done with it. He made everything. It was good, happily ever after. 
But the rest of the Bible follows Genesis chapter 3 and talks about the reconciliation that is necessary between God and man because of the sin that takes place in Genesis 3. And it explains why we have so many problems today. Every, every sin that pervades us, every mess that we're in, every, every sorrow, every sickness, everything that we face in this world that is wrong with this world stems from Genesis chapter 3. But as we look at this, I want us to be careful how we approach this. And we want to, as we've been laying down, we've said the purpose of the series is to know God as he revealed himself to us in his word. And so we want to come at this chapter with God's perspective. We need to remember that he's the only God. Remember we said that he's supreme and sovereign. The implication of that is that he made us, so he's in charge. Just like my peanut butter and jelly sandwich that I made and that I own, he created us, so he has the right to tell us what's right and what's wrong. What we can do, what we can't do. What our purpose is, who we are, he has the right to tell us all of that because he's God and he made us. He made us in his image. We said, remember, he created us to reflect his image, that we are image bearers, and we should value one another accordingly, and that we were created in his image to have a relationship with him. The reason God made you and I is so that we could have a relationship with him. And then we see, and I don't want us to gloss over this point, he communicated with man. Now hear me on this. This is so huge that God did not just create man and then just kind of leave him to figure stuff out. God communicates with us everything that we need to know. Maybe not everything we want to know. You and I have a lot of questions. We sang that in our last song. But he tells us everything we need to know about himself and about truth. And he does this here in the garden. Remember in chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... He communicates with man what he wants. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There's nothing fuzzy there. He clearly lays out the parameters and the consequence for violating those those commands, for coloring outside of the lines. You eat of this tree and you'll die. And he communicates that with man. Because remember, he made Adam and Eve. He did not want to create robots. He didn't want people who had to worship him, who had to serve him. It's a choice. And so today we're going to see Adam and Eve have a choice to obey God, to believe his word, to depend on him, or to disbelieve him, to disobey him, and to depend on on themselves instead of on God. And today we're going to look at Adam and Eve's poor choice. And we're going to look at the steps they took toward death. This is a dangerous road that they walked. Our outline this morning is that there's a deceiver. There's one who lies to them, one who tempts. And then they start by doubting God's word. Then they go to denying his word and then disobeying God's word, which leads to sin. And the result is the discovery and a disguise. And we'll explain what that is. So let's get to work here. The deceiver. Okay, first of all, Genesis chapter 3, most of it's going to be in the ESV if you're following along. Verse, uh, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now you stop right there. Who is the serpent? We'll say, well, that's, that's Satan, right? You notice, if you read Genesis chapter 3, it never identifies him explicitly as Satan. In fact, if you go through scripture, there's never this like, chapter and verse that says Satan was the serpent doesn't say those exact words, but just like the Trinity, the Bible doesn't say the word Trinity, but we see evidence, we see fingerprints of the Trinity everywhere. 
And we see the same thing about Satan. One of the key verses here, uh, Revelation 12, 9, we read this last week, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So here we see the one who's deceived the whole world, which is exactly what's going on in Genesis chapter 3, and it calls him, it calls Satan that ancient serpent. So we put these context clues together. And we see in John 8 that he's called the murderer and the father of lies. And that's exactly what's going down in Genesis 3. They're being lied to, and eventually there is murder. There is death. Now, it's a debated subject for sure. And and many people land on exactly what this means. The great reformer Martin Luther said, Let us therefore establish in the first place that the serpent is a real serpent, but one that has been entered and taken over by Satan. That was Martin Luther's conclusion. Or other people have said maybe he influenced the snake. Other, other people say he became a snake himself. We don't know. The fact is we're not told in Scripture. But what we do know is that at the, at the base of this, the Satan's behind this. This isn't just some evil mastermind snake doing his own thing. Satan is the father of lies. And we see that he is the deceiver. So... Whatever degree, we have Satan here. And he's still licking his wounds from being bounced out of heaven that we looked at last week. And now he sets his eyes on God's crown jewel of creation. Man, made in his image. And he attacks. Now notice here that it says the serpent was crafty. The serpent was crafty. This word can mean subtle or or cunning. Satan does not come bursting in with horns and a pitchfork going, don't worship God, worship yourself, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to lie to you. That would not be subtle or cunning, right? That is not the approach he takes. And it's interesting here to me that Eve doesn't freak out when a snake talks to her. I think about that. If I'm Eve... And this snake comes walking up to me. Remember, they don't slither yet. That's coming when they get cursed. The snake comes walking up to me and starts talking. I'm not just like, oh, hey, talking snake, what's up? Right? Like, what in the world is going on here? We don't know. We're not told why she thinks this is normal. Like, maybe they're still just discovering things. Maybe they haven't named all the animals. Did animals talk at that point? We don't know. It's just not explicit here. But what we do know is that Satan comes in a subtle manner and doesn't freak Eve out. In fact, that is how Satan rolls. He disguises himself to deceive the world. We see this in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That he comes and he doesn't show his hand. He doesn't show what he's up to and who he really is. He comes in a way that is enticing, that is appeasing. And that's temptation. In fact, Satan doesn't even want you to think he's there at all. It's been said many times, the greatest trick the devil devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. The greatest trick he ever pulled was convincing the world that he wasn't even there to begin with. And Satan, listen, Satan doesn't need you and I to worship him by name. He doesn't care if we're not rewriting our worship songs and putting Satan in where God is. As long as he gets us to take our eyes off of God and put them onto ourselves, he's winning and he's being worshipped. And in John 8, 44, it explains how he operates. 
You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what we see here is Satan's motive. Make no, no doubt about it. Satan wants to kill. He wants to separate God and man and destroy that relationship. And his method is to lie. He's going to use deception. So what we want to look at this morning is how Satan uses his lies to bring death and destruction onto this good world that God has made. And the first step that he takes is to get Eve to doubt God's word. To doubt God's word. Look at what he does. Genesis 3, 1, the second half. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, notice again Satan's subtlety. He does not say, worship yourself, not God. He starts with this harmless question. And actually, it's the first question of the Bible. Up until this point, there have only been answers. God telling us what is true. And there was nothing to question. And listen, the deadliest assault ever launched on mankind was not an atom bomb. It was not 9-11. It's not some viral pandemic. It's the lie that the creature can question the creator. That the creature can question the creator. That what God has said is subject to our judgment. John MacArthur put it this way. All temptation starts with the idea that we have a right to evaluate what God has said or required. You see what he says there? In Genesis 1 and 2, it's just God saying, this is true. This is reality. And Adam and Eve believing that and just letting God be God. But now there's this subtlety where Satan's bringing her in to question that. Did God really say that? And it's subtle, but it's huge. And notice that Satan's quoting scripture here. He's referring back to what God said in chapter 2. We looked at it when God gave them the command not to eat of the tree or they'll die. And listen, the best lies are often the closest to the truth. It's just this subtle twist. And what he does is he focuses on the negative. Here's Satan's tone. So God's saying that you can't just eat of any tree in the fruit in the garden, huh? Hmm, interesting. Seems a little restrictive. Satan focuses Eve on the one boundary instead of all of the freedom that God has given them. And Satan, what he's doing is he's sowing the seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. He said, the doubt about what? First of all, it's, it's, he's getting Eve to doubt the character of God, fundamentally questioning who God is, and then out of that, questioning what he has said to them to doubt his word. See, in the same way that I started to doubt my parents had my best interest in mind, and, and, and then I started believing that they were trying to deprive me of real enjoyment. They called it a good night's sleep, but they were just trying to rip away from me those late night chuckles, right? And it's, it's this subtle doubt, and Satan starts to get Eve to question God. Is he really for me? Does he really have my best interest in mind, or is he just some kind of cruel killjoy that's trying to deprive me from this really good-tasting fruit, and don't we start to do that in our lives as, as, as humans, where we, we start to do the same thing in our own minds? Did God really say that you can only have sex with your own wife? Did, did God really say that I, I can't, I'm not even supposed to look? 
That, 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 I mean, think about all the things that he's restricting me from. God doesn't want me to have fun. God doesn't want me to ex- experience real pleasure. And we start to look at all the satisfaction and pleasure that he's holding us back from and start to doubt if he really is good. And listen to Eve's response. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, at first, this seems pretty harmless, right? Seems like actually she's kind of rebutting what uh, Satan's trying to tempt her with. But what happens here is she begins to entertain Satan's focus on the restriction. And, And she adds to God's word. Notice here, she goes, neither shall you touch it. Now, that's not said in Genesis 2. Now, there's, that we can leave the door open that maybe God, you know, maybe that was communicated at one sense or another, at one time or another. We don't know for sure. But it seems as though she's adding to God's word here. And it's almost, you can almost hear the eye roll. Yeah, tell me about it. And we can't even touch it, right? And the sin, the sin that we see here in Genesis chapter 3, is not when it's not the moment when Eve ate of the fruit. I think it happens before that. H.C. Lippold says the sin was the moment she believed God was not good and that God had restricted her from something good. The moment she stopped all sin comes from mistrusting God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And the moment we, we, we cease to trust who he has said to us that he is, we have sinned. What should she have done? You remember in the desert, the second Adam comes to earth, and he's tempted by that same slimy snake? What is it that Jesus does? Again, Satan misquotes God's word, tries to tempt him, and Jesus comes back with this emphatic, heavenly, no, He says, it is written, man should not live on bread alone. And when Satan tries to use his word and goes, jump off this cliff, he said in his word that his angels will save you. And Jesus says, no, it is written, do not test the Lord your God. He battles Satan's lies with God's truth. And he never for a second ceases to trust that he's got a good daddy who loves him and is there for him and has his best interest in mind. In the same way, when I felt the temptation to creep out of bed to watch Letterman, I should have said, no, mom and dad are good and their rules are for my best interest and body slammed myself back onto my pillow. Like a good boy. That's right. That's right. Just like we should respond when Satan whispers into our ear and he tries to tell us lies about who our God is, We need to run. We need to reject that and say, no, for it is written. Well, Satan's got her now. And he moves from this subtle doubt to this blatant denial. Look at what he says. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Or the New Living says it even more emphatically. You won't die. You won't die. No longer subtly just getting her. He's already gotten Eve to doubt God's goodness. And now he just moves blatantly, says, God is a liar. God has lied to you, and and, and he is there. He wants to deceive you, to harm you, to restrict you from joy, to take away your freedom. God is lying to you. 
And what's the lie here? What's the lie that he's saying? There is no judgment for sin. He says, you're not going to die. You can do whatever you want, and there is no ramification. And isn't that what our culture is selling us today? I mean, we want to believe that I can do whatever I want, that I'm cutting the strings, that God is not the master over me, that he doesn't determine my moves, that I'm autonomous, that I'm free to do whatever I want. And we assault the lies that God is not love and that love is, do, is letting other people do whatever they want. And isn't that the message today, that love is just you do you, man. You find your own self, you do your self-gratification thing, your self-discovery, whatever feels good, do it. You can do whatever you want, and there's no one there to punish you to the contrary. So Eve might think, why is God like this? Why is it that he wants to restrict me in this way? Look at what, he said, she, look at what he, uh, Satan's response is in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's lie is God is holding out on you because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. That God is this like scaredy cat up there that's freaked out that someone else is going to become as wise as him, as strong as him, as good as him. That mom and dad don't want me to be like them, staying up late and watching David Letterman, because then I'll be just as funny as they are. They've got some serious character flaws in their parenting style, right? Now, if anyone knows this feeling, it's Satan. Remember, he got kicked out of heaven because he said, I will be like the Most High. And again, there's a subtle twist here. Because God is the only God, and there is none who can be like him. But he doesn't, listen, the reason he wants them to, to, to not eat of the fruit of the tree is not because he's holding out on them, but because it is best for man to trust God and let God tell us what is right and what is wrong. See, there's, there's, this, there's this huge difference between when God knows good and evil, the difference between good and evil, he knows it like a doctor knows about cancer where the doctor understands cancer outside of himself. When man would come to know good and evil, he knows it like a patient, and it's the cancer within himself. That's the difference between God knowing good and evil and us knowing good and evil on our own. And I want to just note here, the fruit is not what is evil. Remember in Genesis 1.31, he saw everything that he made, and he said everything was very good. God didn't make some like bad rotten fruit and then some good fruit. The evil, Eve came to know evil by doing it. The evil is in her heart, not in the fruit that she ate. The evil is what comes out of man, not what goes into man. And so this leads to the fourth step, disobeying God's word. Um, once Eve had convinced herself that God didn't have her best in mind, it was game over. It was already decided. And verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate of it. And a fundamental change here happens where Eve stops looking to her God to satisfy her and looks at the things that God made to satisfy her. And this is what she comes up with. The first thing is she sees that it's good for food. Now, is she hungry? Like, is Eve, has God deprived poor Adam and Eve and they have nothing to eat? 
You can't shake a stick without hitting a fruit or vegetable that God has made for them to eat and enjoy. This is not the problem. Did my parents deprive me of all entertainment and pleasure as a kid? No, I had a huge trampoline. I could watch cartoons and movies almost any time of the day. I had a bike. I had a bas- basketball hoop. My parents were loaded. No, um, I had all these areas where I could experience pleasure, and, and I had food. They fed me. They're great parents. I had everything I needed, and yet I focused on this one thing, this parameter where they had said, trust us. This is better. And that's how lust works. It's, it's the lie that something is satisfying in this that I have never, that I could never have anywhere else. Literally, in this case, the forbidden fruit tasting sweeter. So they said this is good for food. It's going to taste good. It's a delight to the eyes. I like the look of it. It looks good to me. And then it's desired to make one wise. It's going to make me wise. It's going to fulfill me. So here's Eve's conclusion. God is trying to deprive me of something that tastes good, that looks good, and that it fulfills me. And so she eats of the fruit. And I want to point something out here. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. What? Adam is standing there from what it looks like here. He's standing there the whole time. Like, what is Adam doing? Is he just, like, dopely standing around, like, looking at all the animals he named? There's the skunk. <laughs> skunk, that's a funny word. Like, is he, like, where, like, what is, is the deal? And, and, and you know what it says here? It, it, Paul says in 1 Timothy, Adam was not the one who deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So it, and this, uh, to me, this is worse. Eve was deceived. Adam knew full well what he was doing, and he still took part. But Adam, notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. Whoa, whoa. Eve sinned first, right? Then Adam ate of it. But listen, Adam is the head of the house. And and later this does, it uses Adam by name in, in Romans 5. Adam is the head of the house. He's the leader. And the responsibility falls on him as the leader of the house. That doesn't mean that Eve didn't sin, right? They both were sinners. But Adam's the one that's, that, that's held responsible. And listen, Adam's passivity, Adam just standing by and doing nothing led to sin entering into the world. And so often, men, we are far too passive in our leadership. We look like these guys, all right? <laughs> Bury our heads in the sand, and whether it is at home whether it's at work, whether it's here in the church. I see too far too many times where men are dropping the ball. And I'm not trying to beat everybody over the head with this, but how many times do we just idly stand by? And here's the danger and why I bring this up. And Martin Luther King said this so well. He said, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. Adam should have knocked that fruit out of her hands. And he should have walked over to that serpent and gave him the what's what. But he didn't, and he stood by. He failed to lead. And so then the discovery in the disguise. The moment that their teeth sink into that fruit, everything changes. And as we have all experienced the payoff For sin is never what it promises. You know what comes next? It's not Adam and Eve biting the fruit and then going, woohoo! That fruit tasted awesome, right? 
And man, it's good to be wise and to know good and evil. No, you know what happens next. And I've never heard the drug addicts say how happy they were that they got into that mess to begin with. I've never heard the porn addict rejoice in the choices that they've made. I've never heard the adulterer. I've never heard the glutton. I've never heard the one who ignored their family to make extra money say, I'm so glad I walked down that road. Sin never delivers what it offers. So Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, and this is what comes next, verse 7. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first emotion that is experienced in this fallen world is shame. It's shame from the guilt of their sin. And their eyes are opened, and they see their nakedness, and they have a desire to hide it, to cover it up. Up until this point, they had been innocent. They had been oblivious to the ways their nakedness could even be used for anything than what God intended it to be, to be enjoyed. And for the first time ever, Adam and Eve felt exposed, both physically, but that was simply because they felt exposed spiritually. And so what do they do? They try to make a loincloth out of fig leaves to cover up. But the problem is, this was an outward solution to an inward problem. The problem was, they were naked the whole time. The problem is what happened in their hearts and the fig leaves. We're going to see next week how futile it was for them to try to hide with fig leaves. So I want you to imagine this. Adam and Eve, they live in this world where they have everything they need. They have life. They have joy. They, they, get, a, they get a walk with God. They have this intimate, vibrant relationship with him. They have food. They have warmth. They have air. They have absolutely everything they need. There's no disease. There's no suffering. There's no sickness. There's no pain. It's all good. And God says, as long as you depend on me, as long as you trust me, as you follow what I say is right and good, and just trust that I know what's best for you, this will be like this for eternity. But Adam and Eve, they trade God's truth for Satan's lie. And they listen to the deceiver. And they doubt God's word. They doubt that he's good and that he has their best interest. They deny that God would punish him. They say that it's just, he just doesn't want us to be like him. And so then they disobey. They eat the fruit thinking that they could find satisfaction in a piece of fruit instead of the, the maker that, of, of that fruit. And then there's the discovery, just like Satan found in his fall, the fruit did not satisfy them. It didn't give what it promised to give them. In fact, it brought nothing but shame and the desire to disguise themselves. So I just want to, just a, a couple of quick applications, then we'll be done. We'll do the ABCs. A, admit who I am. Admit who I am. Like Adam and Eve, we so often sow the fig leaves to cover ourselves, to cover our guilt and our shame, and we hide from each other. Let's be a church who is not afraid to rip off the fig leaves, metaphorically, and show each other who we really are. Let's be a church that's real. Let's be a church that's vulnerable, that's honest with each other, because our outward disguises can't cover our inward shame anyway. I love this quote from Derek Webb. He's an artist, a musical artist. He said, church should look a lot more like an AA meeting than an Amway convention. We're not here to sell ourselves and to come in with the big shiny smile and it's all good. How you doing, brother? It's great. Isn't God good? He is. <laughs> right? And we have the Facebook posts, which everything looks good in our life. And then after the post, we go back to killing each other. Right? You know what I'm talking about. And we try to paint this picture that everything's good when it's not, and it's okay that it's not. And I want us to be coming in here and I go, hello, my name is Justin and I'm a sinner. Hi, Justin. Right? Yeah. 
We, we, we admit who we really are. We are sinners. Sinners with a Savior. Which leads us to our second point. Let's believe. Let's believe who God is. And unlike, we have the same proclivity in our hearts to doubt that God is good, that he's for us, that he's in charge, that he is going to punish sin one day, even though it doesn't look like there's a lot of justice in this world right now. One day, every wrong is going to be righted. And he's going to judge Let's believe who God is. And, and thirdly, let's claim. Let's claim God's truth against Satan's lies. Listen, Eve bandwagoned onto Satan's lies about God. Jesus in the desert, he fought Satan's lies with God's truth. And you and I, we need to claim specific promises against those specific lies. So if you're here this morning and someone's telling you, maybe it's a voice in your head, maybe it is someone else, and they're saying, you're not good enough. You're too sinful. You've colored too far outside the lines. You can't make things right. You can't come back to your family. You can't come back to church. You can't uncover. You can't tell someone what you've really dealt with. We say no, for it is written, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I've been forgiven because he was condemned in my place. Let's claim God's truth against Satan's lies and not fall in the air of the first Adam. Next week, Adam and Eve have sinned. Daddy's turning the corner, and we're going to see what God has to say about their sin. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that our church, that these people, that that our family would be a people who are, are not afraid to expose themselves for who we really are, that none of us None of us are good. None of us are perfect, let alone anything good in any of us on our own. I pray that we would have the boldness to admit who we really are and to cling to who you say you are. Lord, we can't see you. And a lot of of times, a lot of us are going through some tough stuff and it's hard to believe you are who you say you are, that you are good, that you really are for us. So Lord, I just pray that you would give us the grace to trust you and to cling to your promises even when it doesn't make sense. And even when you're not showing us yourself, we believe because you've said it. And I pray that that we would be a people who would not doubt, who would not deny, and who would not disobey, but that we would know your truth, believe your truth, and claim it. We are yours. You love us. You're for us. You've given us Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.